All right, my guest this week on the Drag Zine podcast is Herb McCandless. Herb, what's going on? Well, just uh, having fun, supposedly retired, but I work every day. I love it. You know what? My dad says all the time, I never worked so hard until I retired. That's right. <laughs> He's like, I'm always well, busy. I, I never really worked in my life because every day I got up and loved what I did. I, I quit work in 1968 and went racing for a living. And from then on, every day was a new venture. Isn't that, you know, I, I did something similar. I left corporate America to do, you know, media drag racing stuff full time. And I always tell people, I don't work. I get paid to play race car and have fun. Yeah, there's hard days, but at the end of the day, you sit back, and you go, I, I do race car stuff for a living. Right. Now we're going to, there, there's so much to talk about with you. And this, this is like, I love shows like this because I love nostalgia racing, nostalgia pro stock, uh, super stock. I mean, you, you're, you've got everything all in one and there's a lot of people that are going to Google search you to try to find out who you are and what you're all about before they probably look at the show. And you have a cool ass nickname. You are known as Mr. Four Speed. How did you become Mr. Four Speed? Well, in 64, end of 64, John Moore came to me. He was racing a Plymouth. I was racing a Z11 Chevy. We was running B Modified Production. And I knew he was John. I didn't really know who he was. I knew he was a nice guy and he was a friend of mine. And he asked me if, uh, he said, Cross was building these 65 Hemi race cars. They're only building 10 four-speed cars. And he said, think you could drive one of those. Well, me being a cocky young kid, I said, sure, I can drive four-speed anything. So he handed me his card and said, come over to my office tomorrow. I want to talk to you. And I went to his office, and this man's assistant regional manager across his own office. I had no idea. And so he, you know, I said, do you have any questions about the car? So I started asking questions about the four-speed. Never seen a Chrysler four-speed. They just came out with a four-speed about a year before. He picks up the phone and calls the transmission lab in Detroit. And me, this kid sitting in his office is talking to one of the engineers in Detroit. Like, Boy, this is neat. And so when I got the car, I was able to drive it. And John and I became very close friends. We were close friends till the day he passed away just a few years ago. And he's the one that got me to put Mr. Four Speed on the car because there were 10 of those cars. And after about three or four weeks, there was only three or four of them left, if that many. Oh, wow. Just people wadding them up or just got tired of racing them. Couldn't drive the four speeds. Put automatic. They sent me to school in Detroit for a week. John sent me up there. Gave me a 65 Plummet station wagon to drive up there. With I took three or four other guys that were getting A990 cars. And I was introduced to Mr. Maxwell. And they told Mr. Maxwell that, uh, said, Herb's getting one of our four-speed cars. And Dick laughed. He said, I will send you an automatic part to put in it. And I looked him just as serious in the eye, and I said, no, sir, I'll quit first. And I'm sure he looks at me like, who are you? <laughs> you <know>? So <laughs> Dick and I became very, very good friends later on. So back in, you know, the, like I said, the, those old days, that, that was, there had to be a certain level of an art to be able to drive one of those cars the way you did. I don't know. I, I started out with a, a 60 Chevrolet 348 three-speed with a Hurst shifter in the floor. First thing I did, when I, well, right after I got the car, I put the Hurst shifter in it. And uh, I went out to the drag strip and I, I could win almost every week with the car, win class. And the four-speed thing came along 62 with a 409. And I did real good with it. I, I never knew why. I don't know how, you don't teach yourself. It's just something that you do. I can't <laughs> but I can drive four feet. It's one of those things. It's like, uh, you know, Super Bowl analogy. Someone like Tom Brady can throw an amazing pass. It's not something that, you know, you're taught to a certain point, but it's something you just, you're natural and you do it, right? Right. You just, you get in the car, put the accelerator flat on the floor, touch clutch and shift the gear. And if your foot and your hand are perfectly timed, you can do it. If they're not, you're in trouble. Yeah. That, yeah. That's definitely when, uh, inside parts become outside parts and everybody's having a bad day oh yeah oh yeah now one of the cool things you keep mentioning class racing i think a lot of people also that don't understand that back in the day was you were kind of segregated out into a specific class and then you raced heads up there wasn't any bracket racing if you were like in whatever a certain class was it was you were in there with these other guys you had to beat them heads up and you had to know how to 
to make that happen. Right. You ran the same type cars in a heads up situation for every class. But in class racing, there was no money to be won hardly. You want a trophy. And uh, I had a whole pile of those. But in 65, the world changed because these 65 A990 cars came out. And the, it, everything in the southeast part of the country, I lived in Memphis at that time, it was usually 3,000 pounds, first man to the finish line. There wasn't any handicaps. There wasn't any class. Everybody pulled up. And, and we even ran with flag. But by the end, it was pretty much Christmas trees everywhere. But I have ran with a flagman years before that. But, uh, you know, they turned the light on, first man to finish line, got the money. That's just what it amounted to. And the four-speed had a tremendous advantage if you could drive it. Uh, the biggest problem I had in 65 was that goofy eight and three-quarter rear end in the car. That thing would eat spider gears. I'm pretty well certain that spider gears cost me about 10 grand in 1965. Oh. I never ran a set of spider gears two weeks in a row. The rear end came out and new ones were put in because they wouldn't last two weeks. Oh, wow. We didn't, break, we didn't break the ring and pinions. Crosser had us some really good ring and pinions made, and we didn't break the axles because the spider gear broke first. You broke a spider gear in eight and three quarter, your, your day was open until you could catch it, which took us about 20, 25 minutes most of the time. And going off of that, I think that's what also for me, when I went to the U.S. Nationals, the other thing I had, I was like, I want to shoot class racing at the U.S. Nationals. I want to be there for it. Because like stock and super stock class race, that is that is the pinnacle of sportsman racing for that event. You know, what's it like for someone to roll into that and be a part of something that's so special and iconic against some of some of the most brilliant minds in drag racing, I think? Well, in 67, uh, I was at Indy with my 67 car and I broke a valve spring in the car. So I was history. And Dick Maxwell came over to me and he said, Herb, we've got a Ted Spihar motor and Lou Williams's car. Lou worked for Chrysler and I knew him. He was a friend. And they said, will you drive the car? I said, sure, I'll drive it. So I go over and get in Lou's car. Well, Superstock D was the, one of the biggest classes at Indy in 67 because of all the 67 cars, 66, 67, you know, the Superstock D car. I won class driving that car. I mean, you know, a Spihar motor, at that time, was that was something to have. And Lou had managed to get one because he knew some people at Chrysler, and, and they asked me to drive the car, and I just had a ball. What are some of the tricks that people would do to win class? Because, you know, nowadays you'll see the modern EFI cars or even other cars, they're icing the intakes and everything else. What are some of, like, now that we're outside of the statute of limitations for creative rules interpretation, you know, what, what are some of the cool things that you used to do back in the day to give you that edge in class racing? Well, we used to move the K members and slide the wheels forward an inch, then move the back wheels up an inch so the wheelbase would be right. But what that did in a, in a sense, another sense, you move the whole car back an inch over the wheelbase but you put about four or five degrees of positive caster in the front of the car. So the car would run much straighter. And people back then knew very little about front suspension. We, we didn't learn a whole lot about that until 72 when we put the rack and pinions on the pro stock cars and Chrysler thought we was all going to kill ourselves. Gail and I worked, Gail Mortimer helped me build that car. Gail and I were together for two or three years there at Sox and Martin. He was just the best. And, uh, we all we had was a pinto rack and pinion. That's all there was. So we got one and we put it on the car and we worked with that thing for two or three weeks, seemed like getting it. So we had five degrees of positive caster, zero camber. You could jack the car all the way up and let it all the way down. And the front wheels never changed toe in. That was the trick to making the car go straight. And oh goodness, we bent lower ball joint arms and moved the rack and we fought that thing you just one tiny movement of a quarter of an inch would destroy it. And we finally got it all straightened out that we were very happy with it. And Crosser was scared we are going to get killed. So they sent some engineering people down with a bunch of measuring equipment. I had to go somewhere with Buddy that day. And Gail said they came in, bolted all this stuff to the front end with dial indicators and plates and all this and jacked the car up, jacked the car down, turned the wheels left, turned the wheels right, put their stuff back in the suitcase and went back to Detroit said, y'all got it figured out. And that 72 car was the best driving car I ever drove. 
Wow. That, that's interesting. Again, it's the innovation that back in those days that, you know, we're spoiled today by computers and everything that people can do to model it. Back then, you guys were just like, well, we got to figure this out. You know, let's put our minds to it, use what we need to do. And, you know, you got the work and you, you, you beat stuff into shape. Well, there were no computers. There were, we didn't, we weren't engineers. We were racers. And we just set our mind to try to figure out what was going on. And, you know, now we had Mr. Hoover and Mr. Maxwell and Mr. Coddington and Mr. Worley and uh, Mr. Al Adam. We had all that group at Chrysler that we could talk to. And the Chevy and Ford people didn't have that. And that gave us a tremendous advantage. Those people were fantastic. I tell people all the time, it, they're the people who made us go fast. We just got to get out there and have the fun and drive the cars. But that, you're talking about that class racing stuff. A while back, a friend of mine had a super stock car and he's running class. And he was on his way to Indy and he asked me would I line the front end on his car. So I worked on it for about a day, day and a half, got it all straightened out. He called me after he made his qualifying run at Indy and said he had just ran three mile an hour faster than that car had ever ran. And that's the difference in heads up class racing. You find the little things that make the car go quicker. Oh yeah. That, and that, that transcends everything that you look a racer that isn't trying to monkey with this program is a racer that's going home early. Doesn't yeah. matter what you're doing. You're trying to figure it out. And, you know, kind of going off of what you're saying there, you know, back in the sixties, you guys, you know, you became a part of the, the Chrysler program and you went on the win, like I said, a pile of races, you know, you read the bio on your website. It's, you know, you can just see the trophies floating about, you know, AHRA title, all those regional events, you know, what, what was it really like to race back in that day to be a to be a part of the Chrysler corporation and be, you know, one of the, one of the guys. Well, Mike and I were talking about that. My son, Mike and I were talking about that a while ago before we started this. It's hard to describe to people what we did, how we did it, and the life that we lived. Uh, I was talking to one of the guys from Sox and Martin here not long ago. We were talking on the phone one night. He says, you know, Herb, we didn't live in the real world. We lived in a world that everybody else wanted to be in. And when you would go to a track and you win and, you know, you've just beat Nicholson or Jenkins or Ronnie or whoever, and you come back to the truck and the car surrounded by people and they all want to talk to you. And, and you can't explain that feeling to anybody. I used to, I've told people, I do these question and answer seminars all the time at the Mopar events. And people ask me, you know, what it was like a lot of times. And I tell them, I say, you, you were on a high. I said, these people fooled with drugs don't know what a high is. A high is when you're beside Jenkins or Nicholson or one of those guys, and you put the car in fourth gear and you know he's not coming around you. That's a high. That's when you feel good. When I beat Arlen at, at Indy, nobody can describe that feeling to anybody. That, that's very accurate and interesting when you get to be, when you're either part of the history or in an historical moment, it's hard to describe what it's like. You know, for me, I've been, I've shot and been at events where history has been made. And it's like, you really don't realize how big it is until after and even then it's like you're like it, you know i was just there i was doing it other people that weren't there are just so enthused about it especially the drag racing like you said the fans they're right there they're they're in your pit they could touch what you just ran oh yeah and, and that's that's got to be like for like you said it's just it's hard to describe it really is and the fans were great the fans back then were all into it everybody was a car person you know, if you didn't have a nice, good-looking, fast car, you went to the movie by yourself. I mean, you had to have a car back then. That was just part of it. But uh, like I say, you come back to the truck, and there was always a crowd at the car, you know, after a race. And, you know, the, the people were just very nice. I met so many people back in that time and became friends with them and still, you know, still see people that I know from back then and, and just really enjoy it. And – that to me, it all kind of ties in. There's so many ways you can tie this into different threads. And, you know, you, you talk about being a part of history and doing that stuff. Were you part of Sox and Martin? I mean, that's, you know, for those that follow drag racing, that's like 
Mount Rushmore level people, you know, what was it like to race with those guys and be supported the way you were through Chrysler and everything else and being, you know, in the mix against the best of the best? Well, I'll give you an example of what, how it went. Uh, in 1968, I was talking to Dick Maxwell on the phone and he asked me if I was going to Pomona. And I said, no, sir, I'm not going out there. I can't make any money going that far from Memphis out there. And I believe forever that Dick Maxwell set me up for this deal. Dick said, Sox and Martin are carrying two cars to Pomona. Well, I knew it was talking about a four-speed car. Didn't know what it was. And I said, well, who's driving the second one? And I had met Buddy and Ronnie, but I didn't really know him that well, you know, talk to him. And uh, he said, we don't know yet. And I said, well, I want to drive it. And so he said, I'll talk to Buddy. Well, figure it out. You know, he calls Buddy. Buddy calls me. I go to Pomona. I get in a, a 440 car. Never sit down in a 440 car, let alone make a run in one of them. And so Ronnie made a run in the car. I got in the car. And I ran two tenths slower than Ronnie did. He said, what did you do? I said, I shifted at six. He said, no, this is a 440 car. He shifted at five. So I went back out and made a run in it, shifted at five, ran the same number Ronnie did, one class, beat everybody to death in it. And but before I went out there, when I got the opportunity, I was working at a printing company in Memphis. I had a good job, been there five years. I went in the office and I told the people in the office, I said, I've got to be off a week. I'm going to Pomona, California. I'm driving a Sox and Martin car at Pomona. That meant nothing to them in the office. They said, well, you can't be off right now. We've got too much work. We've got too much to do. I said, well, I'll tell you what, Friday, have my vacation checks ready. And when I walk out the door, you'll never see me again. I quit. And I quit work to go drive that car for Sox and Martin at Pomona. And that turned out to be the best thing I ever did. Because then later on that year, Buddy showed up in Bristol. Buddy Ron did with two cars. Hadn't even talked to him since we left Pomona. And Buddy comes over and says, hey, we brought two cars. You want to drive the second one? That was a dumb question. Of course I did. <laughs> I didn't hit and drove it. And, uh, you know, two years later, that was in 68 and, and 70, when they decided to put a full-time second car on because of the, the number of requests for match races and the way the pro stock thing was growing. Uh, Buddy called me and the 1st of May, May the 13th, if I remember right, about 9.30 that morning. And at 9 o'clock, Wednesday morning, I lived in Burlington. There wasn't any, I'll think about it, I'll talk to him. I said, yes, sir, I'll be there. No question about it. I think that's part of the way racers are. Like uh, someone that really, like, you got to be, when you're hungry and you want to do it, when you're given that opportunity, you jump on it, especially back then, because think of, you know, how many other people would have been, you know, wanted to jump in that seat? Well, to drive for Sox and Martin, if you had any brains at all, you'd want to do it. But that duster had had problems. They'd had a couple of people make runs in the car, and everybody had trouble with the car. Well, I get in the car, and uh, in three weeks, I had the transmission out of the car four times. And I told Buddy, I said, Buddy, there's something wrong with this car. I said, I hadn't had transmission out of my 68 car four times in a year. So I went home that weekend. I didn't have a race. Got my 68 car out. I went over to Arkansas. They had a bracket race. I won the bracket race in my 68 car. Came back and got the duster, took it to Memphis, parked it beside my 68 car, and started going through and looking at what was different. And the clutch pedal was the problem. I switched the clutch pedal in the car. I never broke the transmission in it the rest of the year. Wow. And I have fixed many, many of those A-body clutch pedals because in 70, they shortened the ratio up on the A-body clutch pedal these little old ladies buying these six-cylinder dusters to drive to the grocery store. And, the, you know, the clutch was too hard for them. So they shortened the ratio up, making the pedal easier. We didn't care how hard it was. We didn't know it anyway when you were doing that. And uh, I have fixed many pedals for people in those cars. And it makes a tremendous difference in them as soon as you fix it. It's crazy that that little thing makes that much of a difference. And then it, it, it boils back down to, you know, that, that was your job was to get in that car and win. And you had to figure out how to win at any, you know, whatever it took. Right. It took five eighths of an inch lengthening the arm on the clutch pedal between the difference of being able to make run after run after run and being able to have trouble. What's something about racing for Sox and Martin that you could tell our viewers and listeners that might surprise them that, you know, they wouldn't think that it was like that back in the day or, you know, some cool fun fact that they might not have ever heard. Well, buddy's thing was we were going to have the nicest rigs at the track, the nicest cars at the track. 
you never saw us in t-shirts or dirty jeans or nothing. We were, we looked like we just stepped out of a showroom somewhere at the drag strip all the time. We were never dirty. If we had to change a clutch or something, we took our shirt off and put on something to get out there and change the clutch and put it, we come back out, cleaned up and put our good clothes back on. And they were the most professional organization out there by far. They set the standard for, they were the first ones to do that. And then everybody followed suit after that. But they were the very easy people to work with. Dave and Jake and myself and Gail, we all got along great. Ronnie and Buddy never had a problem. I sat in Buddy's office the first day and I said, what happens when Ronnie and I will run each other? He said, first man to the finish line is a winner. And that's the way it was. I was never told to let Ronnie win or to do anything. I mean, I got in the car and went to the starting line with intentions of getting to the finish line first. And Buddy and I are still very good friends today. And he ran that operation like a champ. And, you know, we dealt with our sponsors. Uh, it was just a very professional thing. And it was a great life is the best way in the world to describe it. We worked seven days a week. We worked all week on the cars. And it got to a point we were racing Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday most of the time. Uh, especially in 72, it was, it was just hectic. Well, you know, th that's another thing I, I wanted to kind of get your take on is, you know, Mopar, you know, Sox and Martin you, was very dominant with these cars, you know, in stock, super stock and, you know, pro stock and whatnot. What made Mopar so dominant, dominant back in those days for, you know, what, what was it in that secret sauce that made you guys so good? Oh, that's easy. That's a real easy question to answer. What was it that made us so good? Mr. Cahill, Mr. Maxwell, Mr. Koeffel, Mr. Coddington, Mr. Hoover, especially, Ted Spihar, uh, Al Adam, John Horton. That's what made us that good. We had the finest engineers in the automotive industry in the Chrysler Race Group. And we tested at Milan a lot. They rented Milan, Michigan almost weekly. And we'd be there, you know, Tuesday and Wednesday. If we were up in that area, if I raced up north that, on the weekend, I'd go to Milan on Monday or Tuesday or whatever, whatever day they were going to be there. Whether I had anything scheduled or not, I would go over there and come in and see Mr. Hoover. And he said, hey, yeah, we got this. Would you like to try it? Sure. We'd go out and make three runs, come back and make a change, make three runs. We had the first wind, uh, not wind, but uh, weather stations when nobody really, you know, they, everybody's got them now under trucks and trailers. We had it back then. We had a wind meter to starting line, a wind meter at eighth mile mark, a wind meter to quarter mile mark, uh, barometric pressure, temperature. Al Adam ran all that stuff. At the end of the day, you'd go up the tower and Al would have everything written out, every run you made, time, temperature, everything. Sometimes you might go a couple of hundreds quicker at 10 o'clock in the morning and go two or three hundred slower two o'clock in the afternoon because of the weather change. And I will tell you, no, we went faster on that run actually because he factored everything back to a base, I guess you'd call it. And the other racers didn't have, the Chevy and Ford people didn't have anything like that. They had no test program that was running continuously to try to go faster. The Motown missile car was Chrysler's pro stock test program. That was Mr. Hoover's baby and Mr. Coddington. They, they were the backbone of that car, Ted Spihar. Teddy was the guy that put all the engines together for the missile car. He did all kinds of stuff for Chrysler like that. We had a group that no one else had, and that's why the Mopars were so successful. They wanted to win. That was their job at Chrysler Corporation, to win races. And it's interesting to see that those cars carry, like, they all carry a certain level of mystique. And I think that even transferred over to the street cars, you know, win on Sunday, sell on Monday because of all of that, because of that, you know, if you, it came down to, if you wanted to win, you wanted to go fast, you wanted to get the girl, get yourself a Mopar, right? Right. Right. Well, you know, when the pro stock came along, uh, Chrysler immediately went to a company called Valkyrie out in California, had bodies dipped. I mean, they deliver us a body in white that, basically was thick enough to hold paint it wasn't thick enough to do anything else Arthur. but uh, our 72 cars we actually took them down to holman and moody and gird the shop foreman down there he sprayed foam 
inside our quarter panels, our roof, and the doors because the cars were so thin. If somebody that came up and leaned on the car, they would have probably bent the quarter panel in. And it's funny to hear you say that because growing up, I always heard, you know, my dad talking about, you know, the acid dip parts. And we had a family friend, Bob Bosler, it's a big Mopar guy, talked about all that stuff. And it's just, it's funny to hear it. Someone that's, you know, as a kid, you think, oh, they're, they're just making this up. And, you know, they, to hear someone that was there talk about it, it's, it's kind of wild. Oh, I got into acid dip and a lot of stuff myself. Back then, you could just go over to the chemical store, uh, chemical you know, company in Greensboro and, and buy a 13 gallon jug. Like it's kind of like a, one of those beer mug, beer keg things. There was a stainless steel jug like that with nitric acid in it. Uh, now you can't even, no, <laughs> yeah. oh, no. but, and we'd build us a box and line it with plastic and you mix it 80% water, 20% nitric acid. And we'd dip all kinds of stuff in it. I, I messed up one day. I tried to dip a Dana 60 rear end and I went back up in the parts room that afternoon and I said, I need a Dana housing for the 72 car. Uh, but I said, you got one this morning. I said, yeah, that one's gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we had to dip all kind of stuff. Because we had to dip the backing plates. We, we, we drill holes in the brake shoes. We rifle drill bolts that held the fenders on. Everything that went in that 72 car that Gail and I built, everything was lightened. There wasn't a piece put on that car that wasn't massaged, lightened, drilled, or something from, from the front bumper to the back bumper. And Gail and I just, we worked together so good. And he was so proud of that car. I mean, Gail was great. He, he did a fantastic job with me. And uh, I could have never had that good of a car without Gail. And there was a stretch in 72 for about three months. We didn't lose a race. How did you guys come up with some of these ideas, you know, in Socks and Martin, the other racers? Did you guys just have brainstorming sessions where you would well, you'd look, look at a part and be like, how can we make this, you know, what can we do with this? That's what did. How do we make this better? And Dave Christie, Dave built Ronnie's car and, and Jake helped him. Of course, Jake was doing the engine stuff mostly. And uh, it just, you were always looking, no matter what it was, how do we make this lighter? How do we make this better? And that's what you were trying to do when, when Gail and I went to take the car off the fixture, we, we built a I-beam fixture, set it in the floor. We welded legs up to the rocker panels on the car, welded legs up to the frame rails on the car, and then we started cutting stuff apart and moving things. And, you know, we wanted to be legal by the rules. We had to make everything absolutely by the rules. So we, when we took the car off the fixture, we picked it up with a fork truck in the back and an engine hoist in the front. And we saw the car flex. We set it right back down. Didn't flex much, but we could tell it did. And we went and stiffened the car with some more tubing. We had roll bar tubing in the, in the rocker panels. We went and stiffened the car up some more. And that was the best thing we ever did to it. That was the stiffest car around it. If you look at pictures of the 72 car, you never see a picture of the 72 car with the left front wheel higher than the right front wheel. That car left with both front wheels the same height every run. And back then, everybody thought the cars ought to twist a little bit. You know, you'd always see the car with the left front wheel higher than the right front wheel. No, that car didn't. Nope, because you're, you're pulling one, uh, one tire, you know, just a little bit, not getting as much traction. Well, you had to make the car go straight. That was the, and you did that, you know, by adjusting the rear suspension on the car. But uh, it, it just, at Englishtown, when I stood the car up on the back bumper when we broke the wheelie bar. Didn't hurt a thing. I drove it through it. I did it twice. That's why there's so many pictures. I did it on the burnout. And, and Bob Daniels wanted to throw me out because I went across the start, the start finish line. And Buster Cow said, no, he's going to run. So I got to run and I did it on the run. And Jenkins always said he won the race and I got all the ink. He said, nobody knows who won the race. So we go to Milan on Tuesday after we broke the wheelie bar Sunday at Englishtown. Mr. Hoover said, the car is not going up like you think it is the car actually moves and then rebounds and goes up like a pogo stick. And whatever Mr. Hoover said, that's what you paid attention to. He said, what we need to do is take that pogo stick effect out of it. Now, the way we do that is we're going to have to take some front spring out of it. I took the torsion bars out of my 72 car, completely out of it, no front suspension, laid them, laid them on the ground. The car was sitting on the lower control arm bumpers, and I went up to the starting line. And I made three burnouts and I 
couldn't make a run down a track or nothing was supporting the lower control arms. So I get out of the car and I said something to, to Al Adam. He's the guy that ran the test program. I said, that was terrible because the car didn't do anything but go forward. It didn't raise up. It didn't do anything. You didn't have that sensation. And he laughed because we had 50 foot clocks at the test before anybody ever heard of them. He said, Herb, as many runs as you've made here, that's the quickest that car has ever been leaving the starting line in 50 feet. So we came home. We left there and came home. I put the torsion bars in the lathe. I spent nine hours trying to turn them torsion bars down because they're spring. They'd spring away from the tool. I turned the torsion bars down so they were smaller than my little finger. All they did was hold up the lower control arm and we put some taller rubber bumpers on the lower control arm, let the frame sit on it, and the car immediately went faster. Immediately. But it didn't, when it left, it just left with the wheels up maybe two or three inches. And that was it. That's, I, I tell people all the time that you want to see, you know, someone's on a pass in a radial tire car, even some pro mods, when you see the tire go up about that high and it mm -hmm. just carries it, it sets it right back down. Yeah, that, that, that there is no wasted motion. It's it's just it's stuck right there, and then it just does its thing. That's that's what you want to see. Yeah, some of the neatest pictures I've ever seen at the drag races in a video is when they leave the starting line, and about you know a hundred feet out, the front wheel still not hadn't moved, and then you set it down. That that's a that's a neat picture. You know that car is going fast. Oh because yeah, it's not burning energy raising the car up. It's moving forward instead of up. And we immediately started going quicker. So for you, finding these things out and doing like, there's people that, you know, have different mindsets, you know, they, they have that analytical mind. Figuring these puzzle boxes out and making these cars go faster. Did you like that more or did you like the driving side more? Oh, I like the driving side. You close that door, I was in heaven. I mean, <laughs> I, I buckle the belts. I don't care where you were or what the situation was at Indy, you know, I just got in the car. I'd only been with him for a couple of months and it comes down to me and Vanky. Arlen and I were both nervous. No question about it. We were at the biggest show of the year, the first pro stock U S nationals. And we got in the car and buckled the belts and that was it. You're in your own world. You don't pay any attention to anything outside. The only thing I ever paid attention to after I got in the car was Gail because he, he was watching to see what the car was doing, if anything was wrong or whatever. And that was it. I was in charge. I went to the starting line and drove the car. And you were just in your own world. You, you'd ever thought about it. your mind was totally consumed with what was going on inside the car. That's it's interesting to hear people, you know, that answer, because you get the guys that are big into making cars faster that the driving to them is secondary that I've literally heard some guys say, I could care less about the driving. I just like figuring out how to go faster. And then on this side of it, you just, you're just all about getting in that car. Like he said, pull the belts tight and dumping the clutch and letting it rip. Oh yeah. And you know, we worked hard to make the car go faster. I mean, we were involved that we had to, that's, that's what we did to have the advantage. We didn't have any parts that other people didn't have. We were always accused of that. But that really wasn't true. Sometimes we would get something two or three weeks ahead of time because I would go to a test at Milan and run something. And within two or three weeks, everybody else had the part available to them. I had the advantage of having it at the test and leaving there at the test. I, I left there several times going faster than when I got there. That was the object of going to the test. A lot of times you'd leave there and you weren't going any faster. You left just like you came. But everybody, that was what Chrysler was so good about was passing the information down to everybody else. And the parts were available. If, if we ran a camshaft, I ran the first cam dynamics cam anybody ever ran in a, in a pro stock car. I was good friends with Mark Heffington and John McCorder who owned comp, uh, cam dynamics. And they asked me what I run one of their cams. Sure, it was faster. Well, if you look in the older direct connection catalogs, there were lots of cam dynamics cams in those catalogs because they became a part of Chrysler. I actually introduced Mark Heffington to Al Adam when I ran the cam that day. I told him whose cam it was and introduced him to him. And Mark became a big part of Chrysler's camshaft program. You mentioned there, you know, your, your race at the U.S. Nationals. You know, 
let's talk about that. That was the first pro stock race. How did that come about? You know, what was it like to be a part of like something that's, you know, that historic? Well, there were 90 cars trying to qualify for 32 spots at the U S nationals in 1970. So everybody that had a pro stock car basically was there. And so when it all started off Monday morning, the best 32 cars were sitting in line, ready to race. And Monday morning, we had a experimental 405 engine in my car. It wasn't a 426. It was a 405. And I don't know why, but I got this idea that I wanted to change the flywheel and put aluminum flywheel in the car. Never ran aluminum flywheel before, but I wanted to take some inertia away from the starting line. So I borrowed a flywheel from Bill Bagshaw and put it in the car Monday morning at the track. And that turned out to be a really good thing because the car worked great all day long. But you just did things sometimes on a feeling that you just knew you were doing the right thing. And that race, you can't describe hardly what the feeling was and how it was to win the first U.S. Nationals with a pro stock car. And, you know, if you're going to win a race, you want to win Indy. That's the, I've heard John Force say that. Everybody says the same thing. Now, that day, I won pro stock. Don Schumacher won funny car. And Don Perdome won top fuel. I was in a pretty good crowd. That, that's got to be, to hear you say that, it's like, <laughs> you're the first one to do it. And with those people, and a lot of a lot younger fans might not know or realize, Don Schumacher used to drive before he owned one of the great teams he used to drive. And it's to hear you say that it had to be just so insane to see all that come about in one weekend, you know, at a young age. Oh yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, we just, you, like I say, it's hard to describe the feeling and buddy, buddy was so excited because Ronnie had had trouble that day. Uh, Dave Christie told me, that him and Buddy drove down the return road while Arlen and I were running. And Buddy was in the passenger seat of the car. And Dave was driving, you know, the rental car. And Dave said that when I, I came by him, I was in front. I had about a fender on him. I left on him just a little bit. Dave said he had never seen Buddy that excited the whole time he'd been working with him because, you know, Ronnie had had trouble and I was the backup guy. And I came through in the end and Buddy was just, I'll never forget seeing him when I got out of the car. How did, you know, with pro stock, how did it even come about to make it a class like that, a professional class at the U S nationals? Was there like back in the day, was that enough of a demand for, you know, did you guys make that come about? How did it happen? Buddy Martin and Bill Jenkins, I think were the two main people that, that did that. They got together in 69 and, put a list, I want to say, of 26 or 27 things for rules for pro stock because the heads-up match racing and the heads-up 3,000-pound run-what-you-brung races, that's what the spectators came out to watch on a weekly basis. Oh, we'd go to a local track, and it'd be wall-to-wall people. And so they went to NHRA, to NHRA, Buddy and, and them flew down to the NHRA rules meeting and presented this to NHRA. And Buddy said that, I, I, I want to say it was 27 things they had on the list. NHRA accepted 26 of them, and the pro stock class started at Pomona in 1970. Wow. NHRA realized that that's where the spectators were coming on a weekly basis. So, so they figured it out real fast that we need, we need to fold this in and make it a part of the deal. One of the best programs that anybody ever put together, and that was put together by Buddy and Bill and Nicholson, the, the same group of people basically was the backbone of that organization, of Pro Stock. They put together uh, in 71 a group called United States Racing Team. It was 16 cars, four Dodges, four Plymouths, four Chevys, and four Fords. Now, one or two of the Chevys were AMC cars because they wanted them in there also, Wally Booth and Maskins. And yeah, Wally Booth was driving one of them, and I think. Uh, I think Maskins drove the other ones. I forget who drove the other one. There was two of them there. And it was a 16-car show. Well, they hired Al Carpenter 
Al was a great PR person. And Al would go in on Tuesday, or he'd go in a week ahead of time and set up the race with the track and the, the uh, local newspapers, the radio stations and stuff like that. We would come in on Tuesday and display the cars in a big shopping mall at the bigger cities, you know, up in English town, Atco, Epping, Union Grove, places like that. We would stay there with the cars all day and talk to the people, especially in the evenings, you know, when the crowds would come in because they'd all know we were there. And then on Wednesday night, we put five, 6,000 people in a drag strip on a Wednesday night. At uh, Minneapolis, they had to shut down the interstate because the traffic was backed up so bad trying to get to the drag strip. And those were the 16 cars. That was the best show that there could have been at that time. It was the best show. Everybody made a run. They just drew, drew names and paired up and made around. The fastest Dodge, the fastest Ford, the fastest Chevy, and the fastest Plymouth. Those four cars ran for first place. And then the other cars ran for, I guess you could say, second place. They ran each other. And the four cars that were the quickest. Well, I was the quickest Dodge all through 72. That was the first year I had a Dodge. And I won four of those in a row. I won uh, Atco, Epping, Englishtown, and Union Grove back to back. And I had Columbus one. I broke a clutch against Nicholson. I was back at the motel and I was all disgusted. Jenkins got to laughing at me. He said, I'm about sick and tired of you. I'm glad to see you lose the race. But uh, <laughs> Bill and I got along great. We really, and Nicholson and I also got along great. But those shows, it wasn't unusual, like I say, to have five, 6,000 people on a Wednesday night at a drag race like that. And they were just fantastic shows. I've got some more match racing questions I want to ask you. But sure. first, I have to thank our sponsor of this episode because you know how racing is. You got to have the sponsors to keep the wheels rolling. That's right. And this episode was brought to you by the help of performance distributors, the company that allows you to feel the difference, not just ignite the spark. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, their ignition systems are designed and manufactured under the most stringent of guidelines. In fact, the owner, Steve Davis, told us their systems are designed as if they are running them in their own vehicles. Well, because they are. One of the products you may already know of is their line of DUI distributors. The first and only, and the first one and one of the best HEI distributors on the market. Their machine calibrated timing curves provide instant throttle response and eliminate engine damaging detonation. For those of you with a late model vehicle, their Sultans of Spark ignition coils are based on the DUI technology so they can accommodate wider spark plug gaps when you're firing more voltage. So check out performancedistributors.com for all of your performance needs. That's performancedistributors.com. Got to pay those sponsors. And I can say that not only do I read the ads, I've got their parts coming from my own car. And you know what that's like too, that you got you to gotta get stuff. You got to make it figure out and make it work. Okay, you were asking me why the Mopars were the best. The story you just told with your sponsor, I'm going to tell you a story. And back then, we had a gentleman that worked for Chrysler named Ron Killen. He was the ignition specialist. We called him Sparky Kilowatt. <laughs> yes, he's a great guy. He lives in Phoenix now, and uh, we're friends. And he developed ignition stuff that no one else had at that time. We had crank triggers on our car in 71 when nobody hardly knew what a crank trigger was. Uh, we had a, they called it a 404 box, which was made by MSD. It was replaced by the MSD seven, but we had that box when nobody knew what it was And your Chrysler electronic wiring harness with electronic Chrysler ignitions plugged right into that box. It was made for Chrysler. So we had that before anybody else did. They had Champion make us some special spark plugs with 60 thousandths gap from Champion. So you didn't have to bend stuff and cut stuff to try to open the gap up on the plugs. That was one of the reasons that Chrysler was faster and better than everybody else. Ron Killen was a big part of that electronic ignition situation that came about in the early 70s. He was the backbone of it for Chrysler. He put the first computer in the Motown missile car, took up the whole trunk, and it only read three or four different things, and it took him about 30 minutes to download the information and print it out so they could see it. They'd already run something else by the time he got it figured out. But that's some of the things that Chrysler had that Ford and GM didn't have. 
I'm just trying to picture the entire trunk of a classic Dodge full with a computer. That's Dallas, that's, the Motown Wrestle card had a, a box in the trunk. It pretty well took up the whole trunk. And, and Ron would print out this thing about eight feet long off of it when he came back. And then he'd have to go back and, and figure out what all he was looking at. You mentioned something before, before we talked about our, our sponsor performance distributors about match racing. And my dad tells stories all the time about match racing that would go on up at Thompson Raceway Park up where I grew up, literally I where, where I stayed. Yeah, I've been to Thompson. And he would talk about people like you and Grumpy and everybody match racing. You know, what was it like as a racer to participate in match racing like that? Oh, it was great. We came in, uh, you know, it would be man Nicholson or man Jenkins or, you know, one of the prime reasons that Buddy put the second car on is there were three real match race cars, Jenkins, Nicholson, and Ronnie. Well, if Jenkins and Nicholson ran each other, Ronnie didn't have a match race that weekend. So by putting the fourth car on, where there were four cars now, then I usually ran Jenkins or Nicholson and Ronnie ran the other one. I mean, that, that's just the way our lives went. We would go to the track. We always parked up in an area usually near the starting line, you know, by the side of the tower or something. They'd always have an area for us to park in, have it kind of segregated off where we had room. And when it was our time to run, we'd come up, we'd go out and sweep the track. We'd spread rosin down, sweep the rosin out, heat the tires, burn through the rosin. It was all part of the show, but we prepped the track ourselves. And it was just a, it was a fun time. And, and all of us got along really good. Uh, Grump and I were very good friends, and uh, Nicholson and I were very good friends. There's a video that I've seen a few times. I love to watch it because it's from one of those match races, and it just it's everything you described. Grumpy's out there with his helmet on, throwing rosin down. Like to me, it's it's like it's a show within a show, and you people are going nuts about it. And I think that's honestly something that's missing from drag racing now. Like oh, the, yeah. the, the high level stuff is that show part of it. Like that to me, that's what makes it. People are going nuts for that stuff back then. And they just, it's, it's sanitized now. Well, I remember one night at Capitol, Don and I were running, Don Nicholson and I were running. And they had a huge crowd there that night. And so we swept the rosin out across the starting line, poured the water down, put the cars in third gear, turned about 7,000, let go of the clutch. And we burned the tires all the way out across the starting line through the rods. Oh, the whole place was covered up with smoke. You couldn't see anything. The crowd went nuts. I mean, but that's what the people really liked. They really enjoyed that. And we did it every week. So we pretty well knew how to get the crowd going and get their attention. And our, the United States racing team, we also had our own announcer, John Lundberg, who was fantastic. And he would get the crowd into the race. Oh, my goodness to see would get the crowd into the race. He was the best at that. And that's why the crowds came out. They, they were excited to watch us. The United States racing team was basically a, a fancy match race is what it was. You know, it was heads up, first man to the finish line. And it was really great. I'd like to tell you one little story real quick about how I got started. I want to hear it. Let's hear it. I had a 60 Chevy that I ran and, and I did real well with it. I think I won 14 out of 16 times at the track. One class, little trophies, you know. So I got me a 409. Well, I wanted to go fast with a 409, but I didn't really know how. I'm a kid. So I get a, I picked the phone up, and I called Nally Chevrolet, where Don Nicholson's shop was. And I got Don Nicholson on the phone. Didn't know him. Didn't know him from nobody, from anybody. Never met him. And I asked him if he had an engine that I could exchange my engine for his engine for, and I'd pay him the difference. He said, yeah, he was putting some Z11 stuff together, and and that he just taken his four nine out of the car. He said, I'll take $350 and your engine for my engine. This was on a Thursday morning. I said, I will be there Saturday morning with my engine. I took the engine out of the car, loaded it in the trunk of a friend of mine's car, took it, drove to Nally Chevrolet, walked into Mr. Nicholson's shop on Saturday morning. And I walked up to him and I said, Mr. Nicholson, I'm Herb McCandless. Well, that meant zero to him. I said, I talked to you Thursday. You said you'd take $350 in my engine for your engine. I said, here's my $350. There's my engine. Where's your engine? And so I loaded it up and went home. Well, I put it in the car, and I went and ran a match race with a 421 Pontiac, Charlie Mitchell. He spanked me like he owned me because the car stumbled. Well, I heard about this guy named Bill Jenkins, 
So I got him on the phone. Didn't know him from anybody, never talked to him in my life. I mailed my carburetors to Bill Jenkins and paid him $50 to fix them. I got them back about two weeks later. I called a track in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. A guy named Sanford Bowden ran the track. I said, I want to run Charlie Mitchell. He said, Herb, you just ran him over here a couple of weeks ago. I said, I'll run him for 50 bucks. I don't care. That'll pay my gas to get there and back for my lunch. He said, okay. I went over and I spanked Charlie Mitchell like I owned him. And, <laughs> and years later, I wound up, you know, racing those two guys every weekend. I had no clue at the time I would ever get to do anything like that. And, but that's what got me started. Go, you know, it's funny you say all of a sudden you're now racing the people that you were once, you know, mailing stuff to. When, when you started match racing and even in your drag racing career, who was the guy that when you saw them, you're, you put them on the trailer and you sent them home that it was just the most satisfying feeling on earth? That one person that you're like, all right, I got to beat this guy and send them home. Well, that was pretty much every week. And, and there were three people that, that you wanted to beat worse than anybody, Bill Jenkins in the Chevy, Don Nicholson in the Ford, and Ronnie in his Plymouth. And, you know, I had days that I did that, and you can't describe the feeling. It was it was great. And, you know, if I beat Ronnie at, at, at a race, when I won those four United States racing team races in a row, that's who I ran every at all four of them was those guys. And Buddy was just as happy when I was as he – you know, when I won as he was when Ronnie won. Buddy was great about that. He, those were his team cars. And, of course, I wanted if I wasn't winning, I wanted Ronnie to win. And, you know, if he wasn't winning, I wanted to win. So, you know, that was just the name of the game. But those guys were really, really good. And we were all good friends. We really were. So one of the other things you get to do is when, when I first literally heard your voice was at Indy for the Hemi Challenge when the super stock Hemi cars all pair up and, you know, do amazing, awesome things. What makes those super stock AH cars just that next level cool to you? Well, you know, that's the cars that created pro stock. That's the cars that changed the world of racing. The 65 started it. And then we went through the super stock deal in 67. And then along comes the 68 cars. And there was nothing else out there like it. Ford and Chevy had nothing to compete with those 68 cars. And now these guys ever find them to a point that it's unbelievable what they've accomplished with those cars. And those cars created pro stock. That's the cars that got us all going toward success, I guess you could say, and, and toward making our living doing what we love to do. And very few people had that opportunity to do that. And I was just fortunate that I could drive the four speed. I didn't mind working seven days a week. I loved what I did. We never worked an eight-hour day. That was a joke. I mean, we had eight hours. We had 40 hours in by about Wednesday afternoon, and then we finished the rest of the week. I mean, you just didn't worry about things like that. It, it was, let's finish this. Then you go home. It, to me, seeing that, like, it's one thing to see video of it, but actually being there and seeing those super stock cars running the Hemi Challenge is just there, – there's, like, this air of, like – Trying to think of a way to describe it. Like when you see them in the stage lanes pairing up, it's like gladiators, like mm -hmm. these gladiators rolling to the line. And you see even like fuel drivers, nitro drivers, like they're, they come to the starting line to watch this because it is just so damn cool to see these cars do what they do. Oh, yeah. The, the, six, it, the 68 cars are just in a, a kind of a little world by themselves. They're not worried about class race. They're worried about beating each other that day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, NHRA and Chrysler have kept that Hemi challenge going. I want to say it's been 16, 17 years. I've been in the tower for every one of them. I was there for the first one. And I just, I love it. I, I, I you know, worked with Brian for the last few years and Alan Reinhardt before that. Uh, it's just hard to describe that. I told him they, Brian asked me one time if, uh, I think a couple of years ago, he said, you'll be back next year. I said, you can't have this race if I'm not here. I said, if I'm not here, send a condolence card to my family. Okay. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm going to be here if I'm alive. Yeah. That described like you just, it's like I said, just being there and seeing it and seeing the cars and there's nothing like hearing one of those Hemis on the chip 
especially when it's, you know, it's a clutch car. They dump the clutch and it's just packing the wheels out, just rolling down the track. And it's a good close race. It's just, it's different than anything else out there. It really, really is. Oh yeah. It's a, it's just a fantastic show is the best way you can describe it. And, uh, just a, and the guys are all very nice. You know, I go around and talk to all of them because I like to talk to the, to the guys. And then when I get in the tower, you know, I can BS with, with Brian about, you know, what I'm talking about. And uh, the da- young Daniels boy, he is fantastic. Oh. And- <laughs> that, that kid. What's funny is the guy that actually beat him this year. I did a feature on that car a couple years ago. It was built yeah. here in Columbus. So Holt built that car when they first rolled it out and like that camp of guys, like they are members of the cult of Mopar. So for them to win that race, that's a bit like, it's just not all the guy, you know, he didn't have a bunch of money and bought and rented the ride. No, these dudes, they live that life. That is, they told me we built this car to win that race. And it's cool to see them do it and beat Jimmy and do it now. Yeah. Well, I was talking to him before they started. And, you know, if they qualified and everybody was getting ready and he said, yeah, we're going to uh, do this or do that or something. I said, no, no, no. I said, let me explain something to you. I said, you're a low qualifier. What you've got to do is get in that car and do your job and leave the car alone. And that's what he did. <laughs> leave <laughs> he alone. Kind of funny. And I said, I've been here, done this. I said, you leave that car alone. You just get in there and do your job. Everything will be fine. My editor, Andrew Wolf, provided this question. I didn't even think of it. And it's a great question. You know, what are your thoughts on modern day pro stock? And do you think it's gone too far from, you know, back when you raced, when you could tell what a car was? You know, what's your take on modern pro stock? Well, they've taken a lot of the driver. They've got really good drivers, but it's so expensive. And the cars look basically alike. And that kind of hurts. That's hurt NASCAR because the cars all look alike now. And of course, uh, when they put the 10, five rule in that just took the Dodge right out of the program. Allen and them were turning that thing about 12,000 and him and his dad, Roy had done a fantastic job of making that Dodge engine. Well, they won the points championship that year. And then the end of the year, they put that 10, five rule in and just killed the Dodge. It just, it murdered it. And they were just heartbroken because, uh, Roy Johnson is one of the finest people you'll ever meet. I've known Roy for years and years and years. He is really a good person. And his son, Alan's done a heck of a job with that program. And they're really doing great. Of course, I'm a Dodge person, so or a Chrysler person. So I was always pulling for them. But, uh, yeah, I think they've taken something out of it. You got some good people in there. Uh, you know, the Summit Group, the, those guys are as nice as they can be. And, and all of them are. Erica, she's super nice gal. So, and Jaggy, but, you know, of course, Jaggy's quit this year. No. His Bo nephew's Buffett's taken over. Huh? His nephew's taken over. That yeah, seat. right. But, you know, Jaggy, he's just a, to me, Jaggy has always just been a gentleman. I mean, he, he really has. He, he's just as nice as he can be. Uh, Greg Anderson and Jason Lyon just two really nice folks. I mean, they, they really are. I, I walked up, I didn't know them. I walked in their tent several years ago and introduced myself to them. And both of them said, we know who you are. Come on in. And just treated me like good as you could ever want to be treated. I agree. And I think that pro stock would see any, like it's seen a resurgence, but I think it would be even bigger if they literally like the cars had to look like a new challenger, the Camaro, right. the, you can keep the drive line. You can keep all your whiz bang technology and all that, but you have to use a body that when we put a template on it, it pretty much matches, you know, outside of safety concerns, but it is, you could look at it and be like, that's a challenger. That's a Camaro. And that's a Mustang. Well, that goes back to the, uh, went on Sunday, sell on, sell cars on Monday. What do they buy? okay they won but what was it they won i mean what did it look like you know i remember when funny cars looked like real cars yeah (laughs) of course that's really came a long way but the people 
the Dodge people came out to pull for us. The Chevy people came out to pull for Bill. The Ford people came out to pull for Don. And, you know, it was just kind of a different world. Racers, we're our own worst enemies because we will do whatever it takes to go faster. Oh, yeah. it, it, like, you know, all these vehicles, you see them look the way they look, the, the, the pro stalkers and the funny cars, is because they wanted the cars to go faster. They found out about aerodynamics and they're like, this is what we need to go faster. This is what we're going to do. Yeah. Oh, you just whatever it took. That, that's what you did. I mean, it, you know, we were talking about the test that we ran at Milan and uh, we were testing up there one day. And so I've told this story at Indy. I, I love it. And everybody does. But uh, we're testing carburetors one day. Up there. They want me to run three sets of carburetors across the car. So I ran all three sets across the car. Well, set B was 500 faster than set A and C. A and C were about the same as what I had on my car. So I went to Al that afternoon about four o'clock and I said, uh, why don't we run that set B back across the car and make sure they're really 500s quicker than those other two carburetors? And he said, okay, we can do that. So I went over the truck and I told Gail, I said, get the ramps down, put all the tools up, get ready, we're leaving here. He said, I thought we was going to run those carburetors. I said, we are. Put the carburetors on the car. I went out there and blasted down through there 500 quicker, came back, loaded the car in the truck, and started out the driveway. <laughs> and so John Bauman come chasing me down the driveway. He was, at that time, he was the carburetor specialist there. It did all the pro stock carburetor stuff. And he's yelling and hollering. And, and I stopped and rolled the window down. And I was driving the truck. And I said, what's wrong, John? He said, where's my carburetors? I said, they're on the car, man. Make another set just like them. And out the gate, I went <laughs> <laughs> and I had those carburetors on the car from then on. These are mine now. You can They're go mine. make more. <laughs> we left there with new carburetors. Herb, I've got one last question for you before we wrap things up. If you could jump in and drive any race car right now, what would you jump in and drive? Oh, my 72 Demon. That was the most fun car I ever drove in my life. I mean, it's not as fast as what they go today, but that car was so good and so much fun. Let me tell you one quick story here. We were at Martin, Michigan, running a match race. And I called Buddy a Sunday night at a gas station. There weren't any cell phones. And Buddy told me, he said, uh, your new heads came in from Mullen, but you've got to be an ATCO Tuesday, so you're not going to have time to come home and put them on the car. I said, Buddy, be careful when you pull in the shop in the morning. Don't hit that big red, white, blue truck that's going to be sitting out there in the parking lot. Gail and I drove all night come back to Burlington, unloaded the car, changed heads on the car. Bird Schaffner had done the engines for my 72 car. He did the custom motors at Sox and Martin, and Buddy asked him to do the stuff to take some load off of Jake. Bird did a fantastic job. He built really good stuff, and he was so proud of that car because it was doing really good. And so he helped us. We changed the heads. We left there Monday night about 8 o'clock, drove all night to ATCO, on Tuesday morning, and we hadn't been to bed since Sunday morning, and we had to display the car on Tuesday, so we displayed the car. We go to ATCO. Well, I was the last pair of cars to run out of the 16, and I put the car in high gear. I looked at the tack. The tack's 300 RPMs higher than I'd ever seen it at the finish line. I said, we're fast, and so I come back up the track, and all these guys are hanging over the fence, waving money and hollering and carrying on. About 100 yards before I got to where I turned into the pits, I could see Gail standing there. And Gail would get excited. And Gail was just jumping up and down because he had the time slip. They'd given him the time slip up there where he turned into the pits. He was just jumping up and down. And he got in the car, and I said, are we low qualifier? He said, we're a low qualifier by a tenth of a second. And, oh, he was so excited. And we turned the corner and there was five of the drivers standing there. I said, Herbie, want you to go to the scales? I just laughed. I said, come on, let's go. So we waited. We were fine. And we won. That's when we started that streak of four in a row. Gail was great. And, and he was so proud of that car and the fact that him and I built that car from a body in white. And we just, we loved what we did. It was hard to describe what we did. It really was. On that note, Herb, we're going to wind things down here. And I like to give my guests their opportunity to channel their inner John Force and they can thank whoever they want to thank, their sponsors, whatever. So I will turn it over to you, my friend, and you can thank who you need to thank. You can tell people where they can learn more about you, what you got going on. So uh, floor is your, my friend. 
Well, of course, the, the number one person to thank is John Moore. He's the one that got me hooked up with Chrysler. Number two is Buddy Martin. He gave me the opportunity to drive the finest equipment that there was in the whole country. And he just opened doors for me, him and John both. You know, John got me started and introduced me to the right people at Chrysler. And then Buddy came along in 1970 and just gave me the opportunity to, to change my life. And Chrysler Corporation has been the backbone of my life, my entire life. I would never drive anything but a Chrysler car. We had really good sponsors. Uh, I did a lot with the W2 program for Chrysler and Small Block after we quit racing Pro Stock when I had my business. And got to work with Al Nichols, who was a great carburetor person for Chrysler then at that time. And uh, those people just helped me so much and gave me the opportunity. Uh, I still do a lot of stuff with Edelbrock. Uh, I've been involved in their cylinder head program. Uh, I'm still friends with Doug Thorley. You know, Doug's getting on up in his years now. If you look behind me, you'll see an orange Doug jacket that's old and right there. It's That jacket came in 1968. And, uh, you know, we just had the sponsor people that we got to work with, with Strange Engineering, who did all kinds of stuff for me. And I've had a great life. And a lot of people, got a lot of people that have helped me a lot. And I enjoy helping people with their cars. I go to these events. And I'm all the time... You know, somebody will ask me a question and I'll get into explaining to them how to do something, why to do it. I really enjoy that. Uh, that goes on all the time. And, and I hope I do get to do it for a lot more years. I'm 77 years old, work every day, love what I do. I'm putting these five, seven and six ones and stuff in cars now. And, you know, that's just what I like to do. And I'm going to do it as long as I can do it. Well, Herb, it was truly an honor to have you on the show. And hopefully I'll get to shake your hand at, Indy this year for the for the Hemi Challenge. If not, I will be listening in online to hear everything you have to say because, it, like, folks, get NHRL access just for that event, just to hear what this, the the stories in this man's commentary. One hundred percent worth it. Herb, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been my pleasure. Believe me, it has. I've enjoyed it very much. <laughs>